morning, TLC. So excited to be with you. How about that amazing weekend we had last weekend, Memorial Day, and then this whole past week's been gorgeous, at least hot, which I don't mind at all. Glad that you're with us this morning. Hey, uh, a few years ago, I had the privilege of going to Turkey uh, with a guy named Brad Gray. Brad was our guide. And now, uh, most of the time when you go on these tours of ancient sites in like Israel or Turkey or places like that, uh, a lot of times your group will have a number of folks who are a little bit older, uh, simply because uh, folks who are a little bit older have more time and usually more disposable income to go on these tours. So tour guides will purposefully think about how much hiking and walking. Now, every tour you do to these ancient sites requires uh, hiking. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but certain guides will actually uh, try to minimize that as much as possible. They definitely won't take you on hikes that are dangerous, but we were not one of those groups, and Brad was not one of those guides. So we actually went and visited the city of Sardis, the ancient city of Sardis. Now, uh, in Sardis, there's actually two parts. You've got uh, what's down near the river, which is where kind of the peasants and poor people live, and then you had the Acropolis or the Citadel, which was up in the mountains where the rich people live, and they actually had this unbelievable wall. In fact, they call them the flying towers of Sardis, the ruins that are left over. Uh, this was actually an impenetrable citadel. Nobody ever took it simply by force. It was usually having to wait it out or through an act of cunning or things like that. And uh, It's a pretty impressive place. Now, the hike there, though, is actually uh, not only laborious, like really, really difficult, it's also in one particular spot very dangerous. Uh, Brad, though, was our guide and he told us about it and said if you don't feel comfortable coming, you don't have to come. But for those of you that do, I'd like you to see this particular site. So I'm like, hey, I'm all in. So we get up there. Now, you know me, I don't like heights. Like heights is not my thing. I get a little bit freaked out by that. And there is one particular spot on this path where you are hugging a sheer mountain. And the path is maybe two feet, maybe two and a half feet wide, but it's loose gravel. And the path is not flat. It's actually sloping away to a drop-off that goes down about 950 feet to the floor below. Uh, you can see this particular picture. Uh, one of the guys in our group was extremely scared, and so he almost got stuck there. Brad had to come and help him out. Uh, it was definitely a scary thing for me as well. This is not a path that I would normally have wanted to walk down, just straight up. But once we got past there, we were brought out to another one of these flying towers, these ruins, where we were able to look down over the entire kind of valley area, down onto one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis there in Sardis. It was this unbelievable, beautiful view. A lot of times, though, we miss out on these things because we don't want to walk those paths, right? Paths that are scary or dangerous or costly, Paths where we will suffer. Paths where we might experience pain. And I think this happens a lot in our own lives as well. God often wants to take us down paths that we ourselves don't want to go on. And it boils down to an issue of trust. Uh, have you ever been taken down a path that you didn't want to go down? 
If you say uh, no to that, and feel free to chime in if you're watching us on Facebook, if you're on Church Online on our website, you can type in like, heck no, yeah, I did this crazy one, whatever. Like, interact with us. We want to interact with you. I, I know I have been taken down some of these paths. If you say no, though, no, I've never gone down a path I didn't want to go down, then I want to say something to you. Uh, maybe you are following the wrong guide. Because a guide knows that even though some paths are dangerous and costly and difficult and painful, that there's something on the other side that is actually worth the journey. Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, open up to Psalm 23 for me. Psalm 23 Today we're going to allow the Spirit to settle us down, to guide us along the path of verse 3. Beginning in verse 1, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. And then it says, He guides me along the right paths for His name's sake. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Uh, the right paths actually develop our faith. The right paths actually develop our trust in God. The right paths actually help us understand who God is, what he's like. If he's actually trustworthy and good, if he actually has everything to meet all of our needs. That's what the right paths do, and that's what the good shepherd does. He guides the sheep on the right paths. And he does it for his name's sake. He's, he's not doing it to harm anybody, to hurt anybody. He's doing it to show us who he is, for his renown, that we would learn to trust and worship him even more. Uh, if you're listening to this right now, all right, if you're tuning in with us here this morning on Sunday, uh, maybe, maybe a friend shared this on their Facebook page and you happen to be watching this like, I don't know, later on tonight, Sunday night, maybe sometime the next week. You're doing it because you're on some sort of a faith journey. Now, I'm not going to try to quantify where that is or what's going on in your life, but there's something that's making you think about this concept of God and is he real and is he trustworthy? There is a journey of faith that you're on. Now, uh, there's another guy in the Bible that was on a massive journey of faith. Uh, it's actually the book that comes right before Psalms. It's called the book of Job. And it's all about this cat named Job and the journey of faith that God brings him on. The path that God guides him into. Uh, if you have your Bibles and are following along, I just want you to flip back just a little bit to the beginning of Job in chapter 1. So you're just going to flip back a few pages, Job chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. It's kind of a prologue, kind of sets up the story for us. It says, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God. He shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. He had a large number of Jordans in his collection, oh, sorry, servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Dude was a baller, right? 
had the best chariots, had the most money, his kids were beautiful. Everything seemed to be going good for my man Job. Everybody knew about him. Verse 4. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the period of feasting had run its course, that just tells you a little bit about his kids. They liked to party, all right? They had a lot of stuff, all right? The wine was flowing. The revelry was happening. They liked to party. So they would throw these feasts, these parties for their birthdays, okay? There's seven of them, so you would you average in one every other month. And these feasts wasn't just going on for an evening. No, no, no. They were going on for days, possibly even weeks. And it says, when the period of their feasting was over, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. This was Job's regular custom. So Job uh, actually has a faith in God. Uh, Dallas Willard says that Job's faith was the faith of propriety. The faith of propriety. If I do this, then God is supposed to do that, right? Uh, This is kind of like your basic religious faith. Propriety just means like correctness or, or being decent or appropriate or polite. Like it's like Your basic religious faith. He's like, I believe that there's a God. I want to do the right thing. If I do the right thing, then God's going to bless me. And and that's how Job lived his life. It says that it was actually his custom to do this. Job's a good man. Uh, We we find that as we read the story. He's he's generous. He's kind. He treats people well. Everybody that lives around him seems to flourish because Job is flourishing. Job's like a good dude. And this is the faith that he had, that he understood, that he knew, that he lived. And it's not a bad faith, but it is incomplete. And and so God is going to guide Job down a path that Job does not want to take. In fact, it's completely out of left field. Uh, We continue reading uh, in the text. It won't be up on the screen, but you can follow along if you have your Bible. It says, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, which that word just means adversary, also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, hey, where have you come from? Satan says, yo, I've been roaming around the earth, going back and forth, checking things out. Look what it says in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. I don't think I had ever realized this before, or if I had, I've forgotten about it. God is the one who actually points Job out. Uh, Now, Satan then says, well, yeah, 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 of course, God. Like, yeah, of course he likes you. Look all the stuff that you do for him. You've given him all these things, his kids, all this wealth. Like he, he's living the dream. Of course he likes you. Take that away though, God, and then see what happens. Then see if he's really faithful to you. Then let's see what kind of faith this cat really has. 
God says, okay, I'll allow you to do that. God doesn't do it, but God does allow it. And so, literally, within a few minutes, as the story goes on, Job loses everything. Uh, His kids are having another party, and a tornado comes, and it knocks down part of the house, and the roof collapses and kills all of his children. Raiders from the east come in, and they steal his sheep, his goats. Other ones come in, steal his oxen. Everything literally is wiped out from his life within minutes. Job says, I wish I was never even born. He doesn't lose his faith in God, but his faith absolutely begins to change. You see, uh, Job's faith of like this basic religious faith that I do these things and then God does these things, when all of a sudden that doesn't continue to work, it's, it's not happening like you expect it to happen, like that begins to throw Job's faith like completely for a loop. He can't understand why this is happening. God isn't holding up his end of the bargain. Job has been kind. Job has been generous. He's been good. Where is God? What is God up to? Uh, Then God allows Satan even to attack Job's physical body and he breaks out and sores, has this terrible skin disease. Even in the midst of that, even when Job's own wife says, Job, just curse God and die. Like, let it go. Job says, I will not do that. But Job's faith has to change. Uh, You see, Job doesn't lose faith. All right, but his I do good things and then God blesses them faith, that had to die so that a better faith could grow. Uh, Lesser faith is often guided to the path of suffering so that it can die. Let me say that again. Lesser faith is often guided to the path of suffering so that it can die. God knew that Job's faith needed to be transformed. He knew that the path Job needed to walk on for that to happen was not going to be an easy path, but it was the right path. Job's faith was now being transformed into what Dallas Willard calls faith of desperation. It's the faith of desperation. It says, God, I need you. God, I must have an audience with you, God, you need to do something. The story doesn't actually get a whole lot better for Job. Job's uh, four of his friends show up. They've heard of what's happening and they are so utterly wrecked for the pain and suffering that Job is going through that the text says they show up and they literally sit with him in silence for an entire week, not saying anything, just mourning with him. Those are some good friends. But Job's friends had the same faith that Job had. It wasn't a bad faith. It was just an incomplete faith. And so they start telling Job what they think he needs to hear. They start saying, dude, obviously you've done something wrong. Obviously, Job, you've blown it. You've made a mistake. You've sinned somehow. You've done something and you know it. All you need to do, Job, is actually go and make a sacrifice. Go and confess it to God. Tell God what you did, man. Stop holding out. And if you do that, then God's going to start blessing you again. 
Right? That's the same kind of faith Job had. I do the good things, God blesses me. And that's what his friends are saying to him. And Job's like, look, I, I, haven't, I haven't done anything. <laughs> I, I don't know why God's judging me like this. Da- Dallas Willard says this. He says, often God allows us to reach the point of desperation so we can learn how to trust. It is a hard lesson, but an essential one. The life without lack is known by those who have learned how to trust God in the moment of their need. His friends are saying, Job, you've screwed up. Just confess it. Make a sacrifice. And Job's like, I I haven't. If God were here, God would tell you that. God needs to answer for what he's done. I'm still calling out God hasn't, uh, excuse me, Job hasn't left God, all right? Job hasn't walked away from his faith, but he also recognizes that his faith, the faith of his youth, it cannot carry him now. He needs something more. Look at what he says in Job chapter 31. Flip over to Job 31. Job chapter 31, we start reading in verse 35. Job says this after his friends have been telling him the wrong that he's done and how he needs to confess it. Job says, oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. He's like, hey, I wish God would show up right here, right now, and tell all of us what I've done. Because I certainly don't know. Ah. I thought I was doing all the right things. But God's not holding up his end of the bargain. So let him come and let him write down all the stuff that I've been doing so that I'll know because I certainly don't know. He says, surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. I would present to him as to a ruler. In other words, look, I'll lay out my case. I'll tell him, look. Check it out. Look what I've done. In fact, he starts to lay out his case now in verse 38. And if my land cries out against me and all its furrows are wet with tears, if I have devoured its yield without payment or broken the spirit of its tenants, then let briars come up instead of wheat and stinkweed instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. He's like, look, if I've done anything, then let all the land show my failure. Show my sin. I want God to come and tell me what's up. Job is desperate. Job, he feels honestly betrayed. Now, he's not walking away from God. He's not giving up on his faith. But he's hurt. He's angry. And he knows that the faith of his youth can't carry him through what he's going through now. Right? The faith of his youth will not work in this situation. Why? It wasn't bad faith, but it was incomplete. And God said, I'm going to take Job down this path. I'm going to guide him on this path. And it is a right path. Job doesn't like it. It is painful. It has been costly. Great suffering has come. But in that suffering, Job's faith is maturing. God actually grants Job his deepest desire, uh, which is to see him, to talk with him. God actually 
shows up on the scene. And it's actually interesting. Uh, All of Job's friends don't say a word after God shows up. They've basically been giving Job a hard time because that's kind of all that they know. And Job's like, look, it's not me. I'm not, I don't know, like, what's going, it's not me. Look what God says in Job chapter 38. Flip over just a couple more verses in Job chapter 38. God says, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? He's like, Job, who are you to think that you can talk about the plans that I have using words, but you don't have any knowledge to back them up? He says, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand, Job. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Oh, Job, where were you at when that happened? Were you the one who did any of that, Job? Uh, who shut the sea behind its doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Were you there, Job? Were you the one that did that? Did you create the water and bring it forth but hold it back? Did you tell it it can go this far and no further? He says, have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? God shows up. Uh, Now, there's a couple things that we need to note here, though, about what God says. It's very interesting. God doesn't say that what Job was saying was wrong. Okay, because Job was like, look, I haven't done anything. I don't know why this is happening. It's not because of some terrible thing that I've done. And God does not say, Job, what you're saying is wrong. What God does say is that Job doesn't understand what he's saying. Job's understanding was incomplete. It wasn't that he was wrong. It was that Job didn't have the full picture. Uh, This is actually when Job's faith changes from a desperate faith to what Willard calls the faith of sufficiency. The faith of sufficiency. God is all I need. Uh, Look at Job's response to what God says to him. Job's response we find in Psalm 42, starting in verse 1, it says, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. You see what Job said? God, I know that you you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. God, whatever your plans are, nobody can stop them. He says, God, you asked Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? He says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful or mysterious for me to know. God, you said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. Look what he says in verse 5. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. My ears had heard of you before, but now my eyes have seen you. He says, I knew about you before, but now I know you. I knew about you 
but now I know you. Do you see the transition, the difference that's there? Uh, There's a lot of folks that know about God, that know about Jesus, but don't know him. You see, when God takes Job down this path, when God puts him on this right path, as painful, as difficult as it is, as quite honestly horrible as it was, God used it to transform Job's faith into a faith that wasn't simply a religious good thing, I do this, God does that kind of a faith. It even moved beyond the faith of desperation where God, you're all I have, I need you to do something. It moved into the faith of sufficiency where it says, God, you're everything that I need. You're everything. I don't lack anything when I am with you. Uh, I experienced some of this myself. I shared a little bit about this. Um, Maybe you're on a path right now that you wouldn't have chosen for yourself. Uh, Maybe it's stuff that's happening because of COVID and and, and the virus. Uh, Maybe it's some other things that have happened even before the virus hit. Ah. For me, it was a few years ago, Um, about eight years ago, actually. I, I had just been hired as the teaching pastor of a church in, uh, in Holland. I thought I knew exactly why God had called me there. I, I thought God was giving me all kinds of different signs in that first year. I thought God had called me there to be the next senior pastor. And uh, I thought God was setting the deck for it. I thought he had spoken clearly to me about it. And then God told the elders of that church, that that's not what he had called me there for. And another senior pastor was hired, a great dude. And I found myself, though, saying, God, whoa, 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 what's up? This is not what I thought I had signed up for. God, this is not the path that I would have chosen. I didn't want to walk down this path. God, you brought me down this path. And this path is not cool. It's not good. I can't get into all of it, but it was painful for me personally. Painful for a few reasons. Uh, One of them was because God was dealing with some sin in my life, the sin of pride. I didn't even realize that I struggled with pride all that much, which probably should have been a big old, you know, sign. (laughs) But that was painful because God was dealing with me with some pride. But there was uh, other things as well. Uh, God was trying to transform my faith. Uh, God wanted me to ask the question of, What kind of faith do I have and who do I actually trust and where does everything that I have actually come from? Is it because of me? Is it because of what I can do or is it because of something that God has done? Uh, About a year into that difficult, painful uh, journey, I thought I was supposed to become the senior pastor of, of another church in Hudsonville. Got down to the last week. They were supposed to vote on me the the next Sunday and God came to me and said, uh, you're not supposed to be here. I want you to take your name out. I was like, excuse me? So I had to call them and say, hey, I'm not supposed to be here. It was embarrassing. I didn't know what was going to happen next. Then then I thought, oh, oh, okay, it's because God has this other church for me. 
I'm supposed to go and get this dream job at this dream church in Chicago that I'd always admired and looked up to and wanted to be a part of. And, and, and I was supposed to be like the, the number one uh, uh, option for this job. And I was all excited. We were looking at homes in Chicago. I was like, yeah. And then they said no to me. And then just a, a, about a month and a half later, uh, I didn't have a job. In fact, I didn't have a, a job for the next six months. Uh, I had about a year and a half worth of time where I had not done anything major. It was not like there was some major sin in my life that God was trying to reveal. There was definitely stuff that he was dealing with. But God wanted me to go on that path. It was a path of pain and suffering and difficulty because God wanted me to learn that he was the only place that I was going to find everything I was looking for. I wasn't going to find it in a position. I wasn't going to find it in this thing or that thing. I was only going to find it in him. And God knew that that was the right path for me. It wasn't a fun path for me, but he knew that it was the right path for me. And it was in the course of about a year and a half where I didn't feel like God had gone, but I did feel like God had gone silent. It was near the end of that time that all of a sudden I started to realize this difficult path, what God was up to. And all that happened because God knew that he wanted me here. <laughs> I didn't even know what here was. TLC wasn't even like in my mind. It wasn't even a, a thought at that point. But this is what God had for me. And I was so unbelievably grateful that God began to reveal himself again. And now I look back and I'm like, yo, I can't even imagine. Like, this is everything that I ever hoped and wanted. I didn't even know it at the time. Uh, Willard makes a really interesting, uh, I think very important point in one of his books that I've been reading. He says this, he says, one of our problems, and he says, I'm particularly speaking to those of us who spend a lot of time in churches, is that we think that experiences like these are only for very special people. But that is not so. Such experiences are for everyone. God will reveal himself to you. All of us can come to trust God as Job did. If we want it and if we seek it. And if the Lord does not show up when and how you think he should, you must not be upset with him or with yourself. Just keep seeking. Friends, Maybe you think, ah, oh, well, T, that's you. You're a pastor. Of course, God's going to speak to you that way. Of course, you're going to experience him in those difficult and, and hard places. Well, Job, he was a special dude. Of course, God's going to show up and have this amazing experience with him. And what Dallas wants us to understand is that, no, it's not about how special T is or about how special Job is. We're not. <laughs> We're no different than you. Job's not different from me. I'm not different from you. That experience of God is open to anybody who's willing to seek him, who's willing to follow God onto the right paths that he guides us on. There's a guy in our church, his name is Tom Glaze. Tom got baptized just this past year. Uh, Tom's actually on our leadership team. and uh, Tom went on a path that God guided him on that he would never have chosen. Started a Almost 10 years ago, when his son Cooper, who was two years old at the time, was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, Tom did not grow up 
uh, loving God. He kind of had a belief that God was there, but um, God was really more just kind of a concept to him. Uh, His wife would get him to go to church from time to time, and he wasn't opposed to the idea of God, but his faith was probably even less than the faith that Job started out with. And yet, when God brought him on that path, his faith went from propriety, right? Just the nice thing, the religious thing. I do good things, God does good things for me, to a desperate faith. And out of that desperate faith, God brought Tom to a faith of sufficiency. Uh, Listen to what Tom said in his testimony. After Cooper was diagnosed with cancer, Tom said, over that next year, I watched Coop go through more physical pain than most people could possibly experience in a lifetime. I was helpless. And during this time, God began to move in me. I started to believe, to put my hope and faith in a concept that I had been indifferent to most of my life. I felt things move in me that I have never felt. My faith in Jesus was a baptism by fire. It was a process of many months and years. Honestly, it's still a work in process today. You see, I never really fell in love with Jesus the way one might hear about in a song or even a sermon, which is funny because now Tom's story is being talked about in a sermon. (laughs) But he says it happened slowly for me and it's still going on now. It has been a subtle ever-growing relationship. He said, Jesus healed Cooper, but he saved me too. Jesus is not a concept to me anymore. He is mine and I am his. The psalmist says, he guides me along right paths for his name's sake. Friends, you and I can experience the power and sufficiency of Christ. If we'll allow him to guide us on those right paths and we will wait on him to grow our faith. Seek him with everything you have and I promise you he will be found. Father God, we trust you, we love you and we will follow you. Continue, dear Jesus, to guide us into right paths for your name's sake because we know it is always for our benefit. Our benefit and your glory. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.